Hello, everybody, and welcome again to today's episode of the Pulling the Strings podcast, as always, powered by Puppet. Uh, my name is Ben Ford. I'm a developer advocate here at Puppet. I'm pretty active in the community as uh, Ben Ford 2K. So today we're talking with uh, Jeremy Mills and Nick Bergen uh, about something that probably most of us have had to deal with maybe in a more painful way than we really wanted to. Um, and I'm talking about like the the security incident that we had with Log4j. Uh, I think there were four rapid re- uh, succession uh, incidents that just kept happening. And it was like at the worst possible time, like they always are. So Jeremy is, our, is Puppet's sort of resident white hat hacker. He coordinated the response to this uh, Log4j vulnerability storm. Uh, and he's got lots of lots of things to say about like the best ways to respond to these uh, security threats and, and incidents and, and, you know, just any other thing that, that uh, comes up. So Jeremy, do you have anything that you'd like to say about uh, yourself or your kind of the things you're interested in here? Yeah, sure. Um, I've been in security for uh, quite a while now. I sort of stumbled into it. I, I have a background originally as a developer and as a systems administrator and I worked a little bit uh, doing signals intelligence when I was in the military before that. So, you know, so in one way or another, I've been I've been involved in cybersecurity for years now, uh, and I've been really lucky to to kind of end up where I have. I saw that you had the the uh, Marines uh, background listed, and and I was really curious to know, like, what does that signal analysis sort of mean? Yeah. So what that was, um, I I was part of uh, it's called a radio battalion. And we were, you know, small signals intelligence teams who would get attached to Marine infantry units or special operations units. And we would provide what's called indications and warnings to, you know, those groups that we were attached with, right? So we'd have people, you know, listening to the enemy and, you know, providing things like, oh, they're over that way, or they're watching us as we walk down this road. Uh, maybe this isn't the road that we want to be on right now and, and things like that. That's really fascinating. So it's like sort of sifting through all of the noise and picking out the things that are really relevant. It's almost like like the uh, the SETI at home uh, projects where we're, we're trying to find uh, the right kind of uh, uh, space objects or something. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, think about all of the different ways that people communicate electronically, you know, and obviously I can't go into too much detail with any of them, right? But, uh, you know, they could be a way that we want to, you know, that the, the that the enemy is communicating. So being able to, you know, listen to it and respond to it in real time or near real time is a pretty cool, pretty challenging field to be working in. I bet that's fascinating. I bet it really helps it, uh, kind of like sift out the signal from the noise when we get security vulnerability reports. Because like some of them are big deals, some of them are not a big deal. And it's like, I don't know how to tell the difference, but I know that you do. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I think the biggest thing is uh, it's that attacker mindset, right? Uh, even when you're working on, you know, the blue team, the, the defender's side of cybersecurity, knowing how to think like the attacker is, right? Because when you're doing signals intelligence, you basically are the attacker, uh, is really valuable. That's really cool. Uh, so moving on to uh, Nick, he's an engineer on our Puppet Enterprise team. And this totally isn't his job at all, but but once uh, Google released their Log4j scanner tool, um, he realized that it would fit really well as like a bolt task or a, or a fact or, or fit into the Puppet infrastructure. And he kind of took it on himself to just build and publish that module. So do you want to uh, tell a little bit about that story? 
Yeah, sure. So this all happened, you know, right at the end of the year, like you're saying, the worst possible time when most people are out on vacation. And those of us that were here were just, you know, chatting about it. And, you know, we're lurking in our security channel on Slack and um, Google released the scanner. And someone, in fact, I think it might have been you, Ben, <laughs> said, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, we could put this in a module? And I thought, yeah, yeah, it would. Um, so you successfully nerd sniped me. Well done. <laughs> uh, so I, I just, you know, spent a couple days and just threw something together and yeah, started with a task to, you know, run this program that Google made, uh, Log4j Scanner. And it's a really nice tool. It just, um, you know, it'll scan all the directories that you give it and um, drill down into jar files and see if any of them are vulnerable and spit out the ones that are. And so uh, it lends itself really well to, you know, running as a task. You can just run the, um, the binary across all your infrastructure and get a nice, you know, centralized list of all the um, vulnerabilities that you have. So, yeah, it was a fun little project, you know. While we were um... <laughs> kind of in the, the, the slow time there, uh, uh, something a little exciting to do. Right. Right on. Well, I, I happen to be lucky enough to uh, live real close to, uh, to Nick here. And uh, we're doing a, a backyard kind of miniature communal beer festival this weekend. So I'm pretty excited to see uh, what Nick brings to share. Do you have like any teasers, any hints that can uh, get, get, my, uh, get me a little excited there? Yeah, well, I've got... Um... You know, one of the standbys here in Portland is uh, Deschutes. So I've got a old abyss that I'm going to bring. And then um, Southern Oregon Brewing is a company that unfortunately went out of business several years ago, and I still have one of their old porters. So I'm looking forward to cracking that open. Oh, I'm really excited about that. Uh, yeah, the, the abyss is, has never really been one of my all-time favorites, but it, it's crazy watching people like line up for it every year when it's released. I swear they have like seven bottles and everybody in, in Portland just lines up to be like one of the lucky few who, who could get one of these bottles. Yeah, it's definitely a thing. A few years ago, I did a uh, 10 year vertical of Abyss where we had one bottle from the last 10 years and they were all very different. It was kind of interesting. That sounds really fun. Well, how about if we kind of move on and, and, and Jeremy, I think you're probably the one who knows the most about like how this thing played out and like how what happened and how it, it turned into the, the giant storm that it became. So could you like tell us a story about the Log4j vulnerability and what our response was to it? Yeah, this was sort of the very classic tale of a disastrous zero day being dropped on Twitter, uh, which is sort of everyone's worst fear, right? Which is, which is why this got the response that it did. Um, I, I was fortunate to be doom scrolling on Twitter at like 9 p.m. when I actually saw the initial vulnerability report, and it came out of uh, Alibaba's research team, which was um, yeah, pretty cool to to get. Right, it wasn't one of the traditional, you know, names that we hear of releasing research, um, but also maybe part of the reason why it got dropped in the way that it did before anybody had a chance to patch anything. Um, so I kind of started our response, you know, late that Thursday night, um, realized that I wasn't going to complete it by any stretch of the imagination. So I figured I'd get some sleep uh, and, you know, start start really hitting it the next, the next Friday. Um, you know, but then after that, I mean, it really just sort of 
it exploded, right? It, it became, you know, as everybody started to come online, especially through the U.S., and people started to really realize the width and breadth of how widely deployed this library actually is. Um, it just, you know, it sort of, it just, it took on a life of its own. Yeah. I heard that Minecraft was actually the one of the first ones hit, one of the first things that, that uh, hit big. Yeah. So Minecraft is actually the reason why this functionality got added. Um, oh, you're kidding. Yeah. So it was, it was a, my understanding is that it was a, you know, a feature request or a pull request from uh, some Minecraft developers because they were basically like, oh, well, Log4J has this ability to do, uh, you know, JNDI lookups. And wouldn't it be cool if we could just put some commands in the chat and we could we could run them, right? Um, but that's also just how remote code execution works. And that's, you know, that's the genesis of, of how all this went down. And that's the reason why, you know, the continuing conversations around this vulnerability are, how do we manage this open source ecosystem that drives so much of our, you know, critical and enterprise systems? That's crazy. Yeah. How, how did you, like, when did you know that it, it was such a big deal? Because I, I remember when I read about it, I was like, oh, wow, this is going to be big. And like the next day I looked at it and I was like, oh, no, it's like really big. And it was like every single day there was another realization of just how much bigger it was, uh, it was than I realized. I think I, I can't remember who it was, but somebody pretty quickly went and said, oh, well, I'm just going to scrape Maven's package repository, right? And take a look for how many vulnerable versions there are out there. And, uh, you know, somebody did that pretty quickly uh, and shared the results of it. And it was just a staggering, staggering number of vulnerable libraries. And it was just clear that, like, that plus the ease of exploitation, right? You know, just just being able to log this malicious string caused RCE was just out of this world. It was like, oh, this is not this is not good. Wow. So how how do you like like if you see a, a vulnerability like that go around, like how do you know if you're affected? How do you know if if that's something that you have to jump on and respond to right away? Yeah, that's a super awesome question, and I I think you can look at it from from two perspectives. Um, and I'm lucky enough to you know being in in product security to wear both of these hats a little bit. Um, you know, so from like the appsec perspective and the you know developer of a product perspective. You know, in the ideal situation for absolutely all of your software that you produce, you've got a full bill of materials and, you know, because you're, you're running uh, a software composition analysis tool, uh, you know, like WhiteSource or SNCC or one of those, right? And you can very quickly go, is this a first party dependency that I'm bringing in? Is it a transitive dependency, right? A dependency of, of something else that I'm bringing in, right? And you should be able to respond to it really quickly. And in the situations where you don't, right, the ability to very quickly search your code base, right, and also that's a good way to verify your SCA tool as well, um, you know, to, to get a good understanding of, of what's affected and then what the value of those things are that are affected, right? So knowing what your crown jewels are, uh, what your most critical assets are really helps you do that. Yeah, that value part is like, that's, that's huge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that's that's a missing piece from from a lot of places, uh, which is unfortunate. And then the other side is right, that sysadmin piece. And I think that's that's what like this module that we released really helps with, 
um, because you might install, you do, right? It's guaranteed. You install software on your system that you don't fully understand. Um, Sometimes you don't even know that you install it. Exactly, right. And yeah, it's it's installed by something else you installed or it came down through an update or you know, any number of ways. Um, and that's that's what was a lot harder to answer through this. That's a kind of a, a fascinating point. You, you you brought up SNCC and, and like uh, analyzing your dependencies and, and everything. Um, one of the things that seemed like it made this particular vulnerability really, really hard is just kind of the way that uh, Java dependencies are are packed inside that that uh, the jar file, like the, the package distribution, but not necessarily like something that you could see externally. Like if you if it were a like a system library, you just query the RPM database or something. But jar files, they could, could contain anything. And if the product that you're or if the thing you're looking at isn't an open source tool that you could just like crawl back and look at all the the repositories everywhere, then you're into the point of like like how do you and analyze every single thing on your on your system and something that i always see whenever there's a, a, a vulnerability is like there's little snippets of shell code or, or or there's like here's a little little like perl script that i wrote that's going to tell you if you're uh if you're vulnerable and everything um how, how do you know when the, you can trust those things and and why did we wait until google released this this uh, scanner instead of using any of the other things to build our, our module I suppose it kind of that's for both of, of you input into that. Yeah, I think it's a great question um, because in in one way, right, this is harder to detect because it was, you know, part of a jar, right? And, and jars can be nested and, and all sorts of, of things like that. But jar files are zip files and, you know, we can, you know, recursively search relatively easily. It's possible to imagine an even worse scenario, which is, some very popular but always statically linked library is all of a sudden vulnerable. Uh, maybe something built with Go or you know built with uh, Rust, right? And and with a similar, you know, probably wouldn't be as widely deployed, but could still be bad. Something that you'd have to like decompile, right? Exactly, right? Or even worse, there's no the detection rate has a really high false positive rate, which makes it harder to definitively go back to a vendor and say like, no, 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 you are vulnerable. We need you to patch this. Um, some years ago, I, I remember, what was it? Shellshock. Uh, that was that was also really huge. This one might have been bigger, but I did some uh, a module kind of similar uh, using mCollective and a fact. And it was literally just a bunch of shell snippets that I, I found in different places across the, world, uh, the, across the internet that were like, if you run this thing in a seg faults, then your ver version of bash is, uh, is vulnerable. And I put it all into a fact. To be honest, I, I think that that was a little bit uh, risky because, like, I, I didn't completely know what each one of those uh, snippets of shellcode was doing because uh, they were kind of it was you, you know the joke about like Perl being line noise. So th that's basically what these were too. Yeah, no, that's a, that's an awesome point. I, and I think you know one of the reasons that we waited were some of the very first scanners if we want to call them that that came out for this were, were really more of like red team uh tools right they attempted to just exploit the issue right and you know some of them included you know like base 64 encoded jndi payloads and they were like trust us it's fine right but uh you know they they might not have been right i i, I try to stay away 
uh, you know, it's like a personal philosophy kind of way, from scanners that boil down to, well, let's try and exploit it. And if we get back a valid result, you know, sometimes that's your only option. But there's lots of undefined behavior as soon as you start getting into the world of launching exploits, whether they're supposed to be benign or not. Yeah, it, it kind of sounds like you're saying that it mostly boils down to a, a matter of trust, you know, that that it was the, the fact that we could look at who built this Log4j scanner tool and we had a, a high level of trust with them. Yes, yeah, certainly for me, uh, for sure. You know, also the, the trust and the stability of the tool, right? I trust that if Google's releasing it and it's something that they're running across their infrastructure, they've done some of their due diligence uh, to at least make sure that they're, you know, doing no harm, you know, if we're going to steal that from, from doctors. Uh, and that's, that, that's a huge confidence boost, you know, versus maybe just some random, uh, you know, repository. I might trust that to run locally on, you know, in a container or, you know, maybe in my machine if I'm desperate. But as soon as you click that deploy all button and you push it out to everything, that's a, that's a different level of trust you have to have. It helps that the entire tool is open source, so you can go in and see exactly what it's doing. And you know, with our module too, you can build the binary yourself um, if you want to have an extra level of uh, confidence that it's you know doing what you think it's doing. Yeah, and it being written in a way that lets you like actually read the code and understand what it's doing. Yeah, for sure. That was super useful. So, how do people normally manage these? Uh, scans or updates or or whatnot when there's when their infrastructure might be thousands of of machines like how did how do they even know where to deploy fixes to I, I know that like even this uh log for j scanner tool that uh google released it was written to work on a local machine like you'd, you'd you'd be on the machine that you were testing and it would tell you if it was uh vulnerable or not but that doesn't scale out to infrastructures yeah, that can be a challenging problem, and you know everyone has many different ways that they uh, put together to accomplish things like that. You know, you could just at a base level, you know, you can SCP the binary to all of your nodes and use SSH to run it on the nodes and collect all that data and read it all yourself, and that you know that's really cumbersome. Um, something like Puppet makes it really easy. Um, you know, you have a window into all of your nodes and your infrastructure, and um, you have this avenue for collecting whatever data you want. So you can write a fact, like you were saying, to uh, collect that data. Or in the case of this module, you can really easily you know, just write this module that contains the binary and some code around it and just go run it on your thousands of nodes and collect all the data in a very centralized place. That can really help you to you know, get a good understanding of where your infrastructure is at and what's vulnerable and what isn't. Yeah, I, uh, I've been, uh, you know, on the writing side of some of those very janky SSH to all of my nodes in an organization type scripts, uh, you know, in situations where I, I wish I had a tool uh, like Puppet or, or like this module that would have made that response so much easier. And yeah, it is a nightmare. And, you know, sometimes you end up running it nine times because you found edge cases as you were running it. It's a terrible, terrible place to be. Uh, you know, preparation is is key. I have definitely been on on, on that and where I run a job and I, it's, it's like it's going to take four hours to complete and it's like 87% done. And I'm like, oh, crap. OK, well, I guess I got another four hours ahead of me. <laughs> so 
if you already are running Puppet, that's really useful. It, it's it's easy to just classify your machines and and uh, distribute whatever is needed from this module. But uh, what about people who aren't running Puppet yet? Is that something that that the Bolt task helps out with? Yeah. So Bolt is kind of like you know your next step up from you know writing a Bash script and then SSHing into all your nodes, right? So Bolt will make it really easy. So you can you know, write a task that does what you want for each of your nodes and then go out and run that at scale and collect all that data back in um, a centralized way. So in fact, when I was developing this module in the first place, the first thing I started with was just a very simple task, right? So all it does is downloads the, the binary from the primary server, runs it, and spits the results back. And the nice thing about this log4j scanner tool is it, it's very simple. It just prints out on each line each vulnerable jar file that it finds, including ones inside other jar files. So, you know, just as a, as a base level, and probably for most people, that works really well. You know, you just want to run this tool and see the results. And, you know, if everything's blank, then you're good. And then you can take it to the next level if you want. Um, you know, if you want to get fancier with it and you want to actually monitor your infrastructure continuously where, you know, maybe someone later on down the line installs a new package that hasn't been updated with... Uh, the new log4j version, and is still vulnerable, you can continuously monitor your infrastructure for introduction of these vulnerabilities. And that's where you can you know, kind of get more of the puppet code uh, and the module to uh, actually generate facts for you. And that, you know, that, that's kind of another level on top of that. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. It's it and and to be clear, it's like Bolt isn't the only thing that can or orchestrate running tools like this. Um, there are other products out there that do it. I think it's really important that people know that there are ways that, that you can, that, that you don't have to sit down and start by writing a shell script to SSH in a for loop across all of your infrastructures. Yeah, absolutely. You got to, you know, pick the tool that you're most comfortable with that you can, you know, rapidly develop these kinds of things, especially when you're in these kind of crunch times where there's a very, you know, serious vulnerability that you need to uh, figure out if you're exposed to. One of the things that I like about Puppet and Bolt module, though, is that it it's sitting up there on the forge, uh, and you can just install it and use it. You don't have to build it and develop it for your for yourself. And because it's built by somebody that going back to the idea of trust, it's built by somebody that we hope you trust that us and other community members are also running the same thing. You're running something that has a higher you have a higher level of confidence in when you have other community members that are also running the the same thing. So it's kind of like the the distribution of uh, such a tool that I think really adds to the value of it. Yeah, it's kind of crowdsourcing this work, right? There's no need to reinvent the wheel 20 times. Uh, you know, if, if someone creates something uh, that does exactly what you need, great. You know, it uh, reduces your response time. So it's very helpful. One thing I would like to, to add real quick, though, is... Um... I, I would I would advocate for people to try doing something like this before an incident happens, right? The time that you want to figure out the gotchas with any of these uh, tools, right, no matter what tool you're using, is not during an active incident, right? So, you know, so practice true. practice like you play, right, and it, do that tabletop exercise, run something, right? Get get who am I? back from all your machines you know what i mean something that you can replace later uh but but try something before an incident that's a really good point actually and and it 
it really kind of uh, supports the idea that we should be using an orchestration tool rather than writing a shell script that'll call the raw uh, tool that uh, Google published because that thing didn't exist four weeks ago or however long. I guess it's been a couple more weeks than that. Um, so it's brand new. And, and if you're trying to figure out how to use it and what its limitations are and, and, and uh, how, to, how to invoke it and what you can trust and what, et cetera, in that active uh, incident, like you're saying, you're bound to make more mistakes or, or uh, have higher stress levels or whatnot. But if you have a tool that you're already used to running and you can just say, hey, we have a scanner, we trust, uh, Google built it, and this thing is going to orchestrate it for us, and we already know how to do that, go make it happen, give, it, give me a report back, that's a lot less that you have to, like a lot less cognitive load you have to take on right away. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, thinking about who's running it in that situation, right? So that sort of organizational risk. Um, the person who does it on a regular basis might not be there uh, when the event is happening. Or, you know, it may be a different team who's taking the lead on it. And, and making sure that that institutional knowledge is shared and supported and, uh, you know, resistant to single points of failure is, um, you know, will make a world of difference. I like that a lot. Yeah, and having something like um, this Log4j scanner module, if you look at the code, and by the way, it's completely open source, you can go look at it on our GitHub. Um, it's actually a pretty good framework for just running whatever binary you want and collecting the results back in a centralized way. So if you have this framework in place before these things happen, uh, you know you can take the specific tool that is scanning for the specific vulnerability and just you know copy this module and add your binary in there and you've already got something ready to go. That's a really cool idea, uh, Nick. And you sort of mentioned this the other day, the idea of maybe like making that a little bit more generalizable framework. So it wasn't tied just to Log4j, but it could be uh, extended for other, other scanners to, to detect other things. Do you have any thoughts or, or plans on extending that? Or is that just a, hey, this is a thing that could happen? Yeah, for sure. I think it would be a... a really useful kind of module to make. So, uh, you know, there are, of course, some um, log4j scanner specific things in this module. Um, for instance, the flags that you pass the binary and some of the parameters in the class for setting up the continuous scanning. But by and large, it's pretty generic. So I think it would be great to take this module and, you know, like I said, make, go the next step and make it more generic so that you can run anything and pass whatever flags you need into the binary and yeah, have it ready to go for the next thing that you need to uh, scan your whole infrastructure for. Almost sounds like a template for security response. Yeah, definitely. This actually just came to my mind, but it, it would almost be really cool if I, you know, you could use uh, things like, you know, Yara rules or things like that. You know, if you had a specific, uh, you know, piece of malware, right, even if, you know, that you're maybe searching for things like that, right? It could be really pretty extensible and and useful for a wide variety of security incidents. Yeah, for sure. That's a really neat idea. Uh, I know that when we did the malware scanning on the Forge, um, one of the things that we can do with VirusTotal is is define our own custom Yara rules to detect things that maybe the uh, big scanners don't. Uh, and that, that could be really helpful uh, being that, Puppet modules aren't necessarily the same kind of things that, uh, like a Windows EXE, for example. So that was something that we did consider, and we may end up doing sometime in the future. We kind of really covered a, a lot of this in, in just kind of organic conversation, but 
what sort of challenges did you have uh, writing this thing? Uh, it, were there any things that were, were particularly difficult that we haven't already talked about? Yeah. So when I was um, writing this module, you know, Google hadn't actually published any compiled binaries yet. So we had to, you know, compile it ourselves, which is not hard at all. Um, it's just a pretty simple uh, Go app. But, you know, you also want to make sure that, you know, this binary that we are distributing is trusted, right? So there is some checking in the module, uh, some SHA checking, just to make sure that, uh, you know, the the binary that you're sending out is the one that we, you know, packaged with the module. Um, and also in the readme, there are instructions on exactly how we built it, from what commit we built it from in Google's Log4j scanner repo, so that there's traceability. So I suppose that's one challenge. Um, another is just that kind of creating the framework for that kind of next layer where you have the continuous monitoring for your infrastructure, um, not just running the task, but actually, you know, kind of running this app on a regular basis and collecting that data in effect. In this case, it actually was not too hard because we have another module that does something similar called PE patch, which is based off the OS patching module by Tony Green. Um, so we're able to, uh, you know, kind of take a lot of that code and pare it down and, um, and apply it here. But, you know, if we hadn't had that, it would be, uh, you know, a bit more work to kind of put all that machinery in place. I was just gonna say, I'm really glad that you brought up, uh, you know, the importance of reproducible builds. Um, Security people love reproducible builds, uh, and I think everybody should. You know, so so regardless of whatever software that you might be writing, right? That's a it's really it's really nice to be able to to provide that as a you know as a feature to your users. That's kind of that's exactly the same thing I was going to ask about. Is is just just to clarify that we were talking about like how you trust. Not not only do, do you trust the the thing from Google, but you trust that we are not sneaking something in nefariously in between, and being able to go back and validate this SHA matches that build that I uh, pulled from that repo. This may, maybe this is a, a question for Jeremy. I think as as the uh, the security expert here in the uh, having the experience in responding to these things long term. Um, one of the things that this module does is it, it monitors, um, uh, like periodically runs a scan, uh, like like Nick was saying, and reports back. But that scan it, it itself is it's it's not a lightweight thing. So I assume that at some point we can say, hey, we're done with this incident. We no longer need to run this scan and check this thing. How do you make that determination? How do you decide when to pull this back? That's a really good question, uh, and I don't know that there is an easy answer. You know, at the, at the last check, uh, Google actually ran uh, numbers again against the against Maven, and uh, you know, a fairly a non-trivial percentage of you know packages that had Log4j in them still have the vulnerable version. So I guess a lot of that would depend on what your change control processes are, right? If you're confident that um, somebody in your organization isn't going to pull in untrusted packages or install untrusted software or software that hasn't been checked, you know, as, as some, as part of some other continuous process, right. Then, 
you know, that's going to, it's going to have a lot longer of a tail for you to run this. But if you do have good change control procedures and you do have a high degree of confidence in, you know, who is installing things on your systems and, uh, and the processes that check those things that they're installing, you know, it could be a much shorter window, right? There's orgs out there certainly could probably have stopped running this already. Um, and others who are, you know, might be looking at doing this for, you know, a full calendar year or longer. How annoying must it be to do like a complete audit and, and like clean all of your infrastructure of this thing and then for it to just kind of sneak back in at a, a like a transitive dependency three months later? Regressions happen all <laughs> the time. I am. I'm sure no one on this, certainly no one here is, is amazed by that. Um, nope. But that's, you know, that's just a fact of life. And it's, it's, a, I don't, I don't have the answer. I've been responsible for aggressions uh, by accident before, um, you know, so it's, it, it's a hard problem and it's, it's about building resilient processes because that's really your, your best defense. Yeah. And I think that's why you need to have some sort of continuous monitoring of your infrastructure to make sure that these things aren't slipping back in, that you have some way to detect when they slip back in, you know, have something in place, uh, make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. Some, something that you said, Jeremy, kind of like sparked a thought and, and this is sort of like half formed. I don't really have a complete question, but I think you'll probably get the gist of, of what I'm saying here is, like the the idea of taking this this uh, scanner and, and and pulling it back because you have uh, some kind of validation built into your change control, so you know what software is, is being deployed and where, uh, etc. When you have something like Puppet or Ansible or Chef or you know things that deploy software into to your infrastructure, that configuration it always goes through your CI pipeline but the software that it actually pulls down and installs doesn't necessarily depend, like depending on, on how you have your own policy set up, you might be pulling directly from an install source or a repository on the internet rather than through your own pipelines. So do you have suggestions maybe on, on processes or tools, or like maybe this is something that SNCC can help uh, with and, and tracking the, down those uh, transitive dependencies? Yeah. So, um, you know, there, there's there's a decent number of ways to control for things like that. Um, you know, but this, this is at the heart of the supply chain attack scenario, right? Which is, even if there's something that was previously trusted, right, it can become malicious. Uh, whether that's, you know, we have lots of examples of NPM packages recently, right, becoming malicious uh, or being typo squatted, right? So when it got retyped by someone, you know, they accidentally pull in the malicious one. Um, you know, one solution might be that, you know, before we actually deploy this change to prod, you know, we deploy to a staging environment and that's where we can run our log4j scanner, right? Make sure that this image, right, this set, of what we're pulling in right now is clean from our, you know, what our rules are, right? And we take that performance hit there because it's not carrying a production workload, and then we can promote it to being our production system, things like that. Yeah, those are great suggestions. And and honestly, they're not that that's not limited to just security issues either. It's it's like this is how you validate that you get good changes, that you get trusted changes go out into your infrastructure. There was something that I had intended to ask, and I, I think I, I kind of skipped over it and, and zoomed on to get to some of the more juicy tech details here. But 
one thing that I remember you saying, and I don't remember the exact words, but one thing that I remember having a conversation about early in this uh, uh, vulnerability response is to like slow down and look at it more methodically and not rush something out before we were we're certain what it, what the impacts were were going to be. Uh, what's your like like what's the narrative around that? Do you have su- like uh, suggestions about how people can 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 do that at the appropriate speed, like respond as quickly as possible, but also without breaking things in the meantime? Yeah, I think one of the things that's um, you know, and I think a lot, I think a lot, if not most orgs, probably do this right, but. You know, we, we said before, like, first do no harm, right? And I think that's important, right, to to get it right. But, you know, stop and actually, you know, to the extent that you can, figure out what is vulnerable in what ways so you can accurately assess the risk that you're facing. Um, because that's going to that's gonna drive a lot of your decisions. And also being prepared to put mitigations in place, right? So these are things that aren't fixes, right? They're uh, WAF rules, you know? Uh, nobody can block, you know, Log4j exploitation with a WAF, right? Uh, there's there's 6 million bypasses. But, you know, in that first day, two days, where almost all of the exploits that people were seeing all looked the exact same, right? You could have a pretty high degree of confidence that you... Uh, weren't going to get exploited by this so that you could, you know, buy yourself that window to make sure the fix that you're putting out is the right one and that you're actually fixing the issue to the the greatest extent possible. All right. So we're we're kind of getting closer to the the end here. So uh, do either of you have like advice for uh, for people mitigating things like this in the future? Because I, I know this is not going to be the last one that we see. Um, we've already seen another several in the meantime. Um, so how do people respond e- effectively? Are there uh, suggestions that we haven't already talked about? I think just you know having something in place to be able to monitor your infrastructure that you know a framework where you can actually you know have observability into what's on all of your nodes and be able to run a scanner or whatever um, to be able to detect issues new issues that come up so you know having having your infrastructure in place to be able to do that yeah I, I agree I think uh, step zero for all of these things is inventory right inventory your assets inventory your software inventory the you know the bill of materials that makes up you know if you're if you're writing software so that you can so that you know right knowing that is is critical and then knowing which ones of those assets are the most critical right doing that crown jewels analysis um so that you know what's the most important thing to secure first because not everything can be a critical asset and then uh exactly like what nick said practicing and being prepared to respond. Um, you know, you don't want to create an incident response checklist while you're responding to an incident, right? That's the wrong time. Uh, so having that ready ahead of time and having practiced and having playbooks made combined with that crown jewels and that inventory is going to set you up for success. Absolutely. What, what's that thing that the uh, Boy Scouts or, or somebody always said is, is that preparation is half the battle? 
or no, was maybe that was GI Joe or some other show. Um, one thing that we briefly touched on, and I think we could probably close here, is the fact that this was an open source project. It made a lot of it easier because we were able to look at the code and we were able to sort of like see what the problems were and, and figure out if we were uh, vulnerable. But often we don't have that luxury, and it's the the, the vulnerability is is very deep in some proprietary uh, closed source product. Um, and, and there's pros and cons to both of those. I mean, like if we look at open source projects, we have that that transparency, but we also don't have accountability. We don't have somebody with a support agreement that we can you know file a ticket with. Whereas with uh, commercial vendors, we usually do. So, do you have any suggestions for companies for like navigating either of those? From my point of view, community is extremely important. Right, you need to be a member of a community, maybe that is, you know, public community, maybe it is a security community, but no one can detect and mitigate these vulnerabilities all on their own in an effective way, right? We all need to work together to uh, develop solutions to help us all out to, um, you know, see these problems coming and to mitigate them when they arrive. So. I think it's very important for us to share tools like the Google's Log4j scanner, like our module, any other tools that are out there so that we can all respond to these as quickly as possible, as most effectively as possible. Yeah, I I want to second that for sure. Uh, describing it as community, I think is awesome. Um, and then I also think it's important for organizations to try and donate back, right? Um, yeah. You know, like our... Our team, uh, something I've done at, at other orgs, and, uh, and I'm uh, trying to increase us doing here at Puppet, is uh, we do you know hack yourself first Fridays, where you know we try to do security testing against you know, features of our product, um, but also right that also includes like hey here's an open source library that we use quite a bit, right donating some of our time and expertise to doing some testing on that, right doing some fuzzing and. Um, you know, submitting patches or even just raising issues, right? And if you can't do that, right, if that's not what your org does, right, donating uh, money can be really useful as well, right? But doing something to give back is really important. Right on. I, I absolutely agree with that. I, I think that we should all be contributing back a, a lot more than we, than we are. And I, I don't mean us as Puppet the Company. I, I, I mean, like, or the entire industry, I think that, that we could all do a better job at uh, contributing back and participating in this open source community. So I think as we close up here, um, I think the lesson, and maybe you all can uh, correct me or, or improve on, on, on my summaries, but I think the lesson that I'm hearing from this is that the real critical parts about any of these sort of security responses is preparation, and that's like having good inventory, knowing what you have in your your infrastructure, and like practice, expertise, using your tools, the things that deploy, the things that orchestrate, the things that report, etc. And then during the response itself, having that ability to move quickly to mitigate issues, but in a safe and intentional controlled manner, so that you know exactly what you're deploying, and you know where, and you have a really good idea of what uh, what effects it's, it's going to have. And going back to the preparation a bit, having systems that already do this, the, the inventory and the orchestration and monitoring and observability systems, I think those are like absolutely like essential 
and whether that's puppet or bolt or or something else it's like i, th I think that's the thing that that we really want to kind of drive home it's like have these systems in place already and know how to use them so that you're ready to use them uh as quickly as you can when when the time comes to that uh do either of you want to uh extend on that at all i, I think i think you, you you largely nailed it right uh we try to describe it on our team as time of detection to time of mitigation to time of response right or, or time of fix right and that you know that can take a lot of different forms um but like your time of detection uh if you have a good bill of materials is really low uh your time of mitigation if you can have a good idea of what the exploit looks like can be really low and the time of response if you're prepared uh with something like uh the log for you know to run something like the log for j module to discover all of your vulnerable assets and and fix them uh can be really low as well so you know preparing to make sure that all of those you know time deltas are as small as possible yeah and adding on to that is you know making sure that the tools work for you right if you if you have a set of tools that are cumbersome to fit into your environment or you have people who are not don't have the expertise in those tools or are not comfortable with those tools, they're not going to do you much good. So make sure that you have the right tools in place, you have the right content in place so that you can very rapidly, you know, respond. Right on. So if, if people have like any questions or they want to follow up and uh, in conversation with, with either of you, are you uh, available maybe in the community Slack or on social media or anything? Yeah, I, I'm available on the community Slack, especially in the security channel. Uh, you know, if you want to talk to me, you can always send me a message. Um, and then I'm I'm also on uh, Twitter at uh, and it's at living underscore sin s y n, which is a super nerdy and terrible. How many joke. people like like reach out to you and, and make a sin act joke? <laughs> Not enough. I feel like we need more of that. Uh, more nerdy jokes everywhere, please. Completely agree. Um, I am also on the community Slack. I'm Nick B on our Puppet community Slack. Um, I'm kind of a social media Luddite, so that's about all I have. But <laughs> you can definitely reach me there. Right on. And uh, because this module is open source, I, um, we are accepting contributions to it. So if you uh, look at this module and, and you have ways to improve it, uh, we would love for you to uh, submit a PR or an issue or, or even just talk about it, like uh, ways that we could use that in, in other ways. Like uh, uh, Nick was saying earlier, making it uh, generic so that we can uh, drop other kind of scanning tools in it, and you don't have to like scramble to run all, uh, write all these things down because I we will attach links to the end of the uh, the show notes here. So if you just check it out on the Puppet uh, website, just look for the podcast. You'll see this one listed down at the bottom. There'll be a list of uh, all of the links and the things that we talked about. Well, and that's a wrap today. Um, and once again, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening, joining us in this conversation. I had a really good time. Um, and even though I thought that I had a pretty decent idea of, of what the, the conversation was going to be and what this landscape looks like, I feel like every time I talk to you two, it's like my understanding grows just a little bit more. And that, that's, I love that experience. So thanks for, for being on here. Thanks for, for chatting and, and thanks for giving me all these wonderful ideas. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for being here on uh, Pulling the Strings, as always, powered by Puppet.